Your move, creep. Wish me luck, Bruiser. You both in Coco. Dino DMA. Son, your ego is writing checks your body can't cash. It's the only thing I know how to do. It's a good looking boy. I'm a member of the Imperial Senate. That's right, Lord! Welcome to Earth. You crossed the line. You know, that's just like, uh, your opinion, man. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Retrograde Podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about older movies. We talk about how they were made, how they were received, and whether or not they hold up. I am Austin. And I'm George. Okay, so we are continuing our month of spooky movies on the podcast because Halloween is coming up. And, you know, this season, you know, a lot of people want to watch something scary. So we're giving you a variety of stuff that you could watch that we think is going to be pretty cool. Like, we think that it's pretty cool to revisit. Uh, we started off with Hocus Pocus, which Austin and I both loved watching. We highly recommend it. It's on Disney+. Plus. Go check it out. But it's more of a family movie. You know, it's kind of like a funny, fun Halloween movie. It's not really a scary Halloween movie. If you're not about Hocus Pocus, you want to see something that maybe pushes the edge a little bit, then this week's movie is perfect for you. Austin, what are we going to be talking about this week? This week, we are going to be talking about 1987's Hellraiser, directed by Clive Barker. This is the second Clive Barker movie we, we've done. The first one being Candyman. Mm-hmm. Candyman um, came out in 1992, correct? Yes. We both like Candyman. We both enjoyed it. I think oh, I Austin, love Candyman. You love Candyman. I enjoyed the I movie. I love Candyman. You loved it a lot. Um, have you seen this movie before? Yes, I have. Okay. I've seen it at least twice. Okay. Okay. Very cool. I've only seen it once and actually very recently. I watched it last year in 2021. But all right, let's talk about you first. What, what, when was the first time you saw this movie? First time I saw this movie, I was like looking for horror movies that would like mess with me. You know, I was looking at... Uh, this one, Hellraiser, Jacob's Ladder, Event Horizon, which I never ended up seeing, but I, I had it and I just didn't watch it. Just like those horror movies that were like really graphic and like really, um, what's the word? Transgressive, I guess. Mm. There's something kind of like, oh, about them, you know, something that would make the the Nancy Reagan's moral majority clutch their pearls. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so this was a movie that I watched when I was kind of like getting into a bunch of movies that I wasn't supposed to be watching. You know what I mean? Um, and I was like, oh, this is there's something different about this one. Like the, the way that the um, monsters talk to them, like their goals, their plans, the characters motivations. It was something that was uh, very sexual, but I feel like it wasn't. In uh, like when you watch Friday the 13th or Halloween, all the kids that have sex die, right? So it's kind of like reinforcing that like, oh, kids don't have sex. But the sex in this movie is different. You know, it's it's a uh, it's a very different portrayal of sex. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this movie may have awakened a kink that I did not know I was aware of. Really? Yeah, but like this is this is not the movie to like. Oh, I guess BDSM culture isn't that bad. You know what I mean? Like, as a lot of people die in this movie, mm-hmm. um, 
but it kind of introduced that idea to me. And I was like, oh, what, what is this? And I was like, oh, I, I'm kind of like mildly interested in this kind of stuff. Mm. So that is, that is part of my history with Hellraiser. It, BDSM culture is not always, you know, killing people against their will. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is kind of something that introduced me to what is it actually, if that makes any sense. No, a hundred percent it does. It's like a movie will exaggerate these ideas in our everyday life, and obviously they'll exaggerate it for entertainment's sake. But other times, like that, does spark a curiosity in you, where it's like you know, I mean, for example, just n- not similar to this at all, but kind of like like a same vein, like for example, Top Gun, right? You you have a bunch of jets and fighter jets and stuff, and all these planes, and maybe you never really thought about it, but you watch, it's like, oh, I'm kind of curious about this stuff now. Like I want to learn a little bit more about it. That, yeah, I mean, it, that, that happens a lot. Now, granted, <laughs> Hellraiser and Top Gun, very different. But it's that, I mean, this is... Ha- I wonder, though, because, like, Top Gun, you know, we have data, that serve, or according to all the research that we did for that movie, that increased the recruitment of the Navy. It did, right? Yes. I wonder if this movie increased the people that were into this kind of, like, BDSM kink culture. That's actually a really good question. Because this was a popular movie. I mean, Hellraiser, Pinhead. Um, I don't know if it was a popular movie at the time. Oh, okay. It was one of those, like, uh, cheap to make, made more than it cost to make, and then they made a bunch of sequels. So it, mm. eventually it became, like, a, a thing that made a lot of money. But I I don't know how successful this movie was in terms of uh, box office and stuff. Top Gun was the highest grossing film of that year. So, I mean, a lot of people were influenced by it. Hellraiser, not to the same, you know, scale. But i definitely curious if people were kind of like, if this movie was kind of like a gateway into just yeah. <laughs> more, more sexual kinks and stuff. And, just, and maybe just things that, maybe not even that they embraced themselves but they were just curious about you know what i mean like yeah what what is this is this even like a real thing or is this just a fictional uh, a fictional story that's just written which, which i don't think is the case i think there are there's this movie is definitely inspired by a real life movement right bdsm um but i'm to some people maybe it never existed before it and they're watching this and like oh yeah. all right well you know i mean let me just Google something real quick. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, yeah. It, it happened It happened with you. But yeah, I'm curious about that. That'd be a good piece of info to look into. See if maybe there's something about it. Yeah, maybe I, I'd imagine some people in that community find it. Maybe it, it's kind of offensive because, you know, the people that practice it in this movie are monsters. Well. And they're killing people, so... I mean, that's always going to happen, though. I feel like to have conflict is to have something not be portrayed in a positive way, right? Like, for Mm -hmm. example, you know, um, or, or, you know, like Whiplash that came out in 2014. You know, you have an abusive teacher, you have super strict classes and lectures and all that. And some people could look at that and be like, it portrays jazz uh, institutions and schools as bad. And it's like, well, I mean, yeah, it doesn't portray it in the best light, but it's a movie. It's fictional, right? And with- also, like the the teacher is the the bad guy. Yeah, like, that that character, that way of thinking, and thinking that oh, he gets results, so it's fine. 
you know it's like the, the giving people a pass because they're talented that's the, the problem i think yeah that's actually another good thing to look into how did the bdsm community feel about this movie when it came out because they might have been like i'm not a fucking demon i don't have needles <laughs> i don't have fucking uh what's it called um uh like uh, that thing that you hammer um nails yeah like i don't have nails coming <laughs> out of my head I, I totally forgot the word nails but yeah I, I don't have nails coming out of my head and like i don't have a hole in my throat mm-hmm. so yeah I, that's possible i don't know there, there's like a weird like kink culture that associates with the horror movies too mm-hmm. like i don't know it's it's interesting i don't think it's i think there's a lot of people that consider slashers and horror movies uh, like reactionary but i feel like a lot of people i don't know it's like they're kink like they i know that some people's fantasies to like wear the the ghost face mask because they're having sex and stuff oh really have you yeah i i did not know that no <laughs> yeah it's like hard tied to sexuality is what you're saying yeah and i think clive barker is somebody who tends to do that a lot. Like there is, there is a lot of like erotic subtext in Candyman. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. There's a lot of sexual tension in that movie. Yeah, and I've only seen. To be honest, I've only seen like three Clive Barker movies in the it's in, in their entirety. Um, and the other one had to do with like it's called Night Terror. Ugh, I don't remember the name actually. Mm-hmm. Nightbreed. Mm. He did this other movie. One of his other stories was turned into a movie. It was called Nightbreed. And in that movie, you have these like monsters, but the monsters aren't bad. They're just a different kind of living being. Oh, interesting. And they're they're hunted <laughs> by <laughs> I think I feel like it was David Cronenberg was the villain or something. It's like a twist. It's like, oh, oh the monsters. Oh, but the monsters aren't bad. Oh, uh, I feel like I saw a picture of that or something. Yeah. It's a interesting movie. I don't think it's like this is one of the best movies ever made. I just I feel like it has a lot of interesting ideas and how like, oh, there's monsters, but they're not bad. And they're hunted by this like guy who thinks they shouldn't exist, Mm -hmm. you know, so I feel like you can draw a lot of allegorical stuff from it, which I think is what makes horror movies really interesting is the kind of allegories and symbolism and stuff that you can pull from them absolutely if anything horror films are way more allegorical than like most other genres outside of maybe science fiction but even then science fiction is still i think a bit more straightforward than or or, eh, it depends actually you you make a debate but horror films are super allegorical like totally 100 like i i think that the the good ones are yes in my opinion oh 100 like i mean even you could talk about you just have to find the subtext i mean yeah sure we like to think that you know like the texas chainsaw massacre is just a crazy family that likes to kill people but it's really it perpetuated this idea from the 60s 70s that was like the fear of the other you know like these Mm -hmm. other people you have city kids going into this super poor part of texas and it's like or wherever Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Texas, yeah, Texas. <laughs> okay, never mind. The, you know, in Texas, and it's the fear of the other. Then you have like Candyman that touched on the racial inequality, and, and, like Cabrini Green, right? The uh, the gentrification, mm-hmm. or was it? Gen- it wasn't the gentrification of Cabrini Green. It was just uh... that was part of it. Like there, th- definitely part of it. Mm. Um, 
like the, the this awful history that's just kind of painted over to to sell houses to affluent white people yeah and the sequel touches on that a lot really well and like i mean this goes deeper and deeper you know and horror films are usually the best ones at it yeah you know on the surface it's like oh yeah they're murdering people but if you look deeper there's more to it than that it's not just killing and murdering but killing and murdering is what mainstream audits just remember or they take from it yeah and the way that people will get killed in this movie and like the what motivates the kid or that i guess killers is like what is going on mm-hmm. why is why does everything have like this sexual like over overtone you yeah. know it's i don't know this movie is, is weird and i like it for how weird it is yeah that is the thing too it is an entertaining film and there's a lot of ideas at play and trying to figure it out is like part of the it's like opening the puzzle you know it's like so in the Hellraiser, configuration yeah exactly trying to figure out exactly what he because i don't think he's trying to obviously say anything bad about bdsm or like s- sexual desires but i think it's it's like an exploration of that darker side or what's seen as darker side but then you also have to think about the fact that the characters do die and the, the one of the characters that tr- indulges in it is a complete asshole um yeah so there's a lot of interesting things there to like look at on but i will say if you just want to go in and see something that is gruesome i mean this movie works on that level too i mean the it is pretty gruesome yeah yeah but it is it it is like kind of i feel like it is kind of uh dated in its like in terms of special effects and stuff so i think some of it might seem kind of funny Mm -hmm. but like we said in the previous episode that doesn't mean it's bad no, no, no. I feel and, like it can add to the experience. Yeah. You know, I mean, there were so many limitations back in 87. And I think what makes a movie, I think when the visual effects really hinder a film is when it's a consistent problem. You know, mm-hmm. when it's a consistent problem and it's constantly taking you away from the story. I never felt that in Hocus Pocus. And I never felt that in Hellraiser 2. I know there's a couple of things that look kooky and stuff, but there were some beautiful effects too. Like I know in the yeah. beginning with, with the man or, well, there's a scene where there's a man that essentially gets reborn. It's mild spoilers. It happens <laughs> at the beginning of the film. And wow, that looks yeah. really good. Like I saw it last year and I'm, I was impressed. I was like, holy mm-hmm. shit. That must've been expensive to do, man. And yet this movie was at a budget of $1 million. Yeah, I definitely am curious as to how they spent their money because, man, they had a great accountant. Because they're like, <laughs> all right. Or, or, or they had a great assistant director. Like, hey, man, you only have 30 days to shoot this movie. You cannot go over because we don't have money. So make every fucking penny. You get one set. You get this house. All yeah. right, go. But, but <laughs> hey, but, but it works. They managed to make it, it work. It works, yeah. I saw this movie last year. Uh, my friend Michael showed it to me. He's always been a fan of horror films. And as I've said before on the podcast, I am not a big fan. I was not a big fan of horror films growing up. That Cena Chucky teaser before Van Helsing scared the living shit out of me and I didn't like it. But, you know, kind of in college, I started watching a few more. I kind of credit the country for getting me into them. And now I'm really, really into them. Like I dig watching horror films. And so I was like, well, I, I think, I don't know why he, you're talking about it. He's like, oh, let's just watch it. So we watched it at his house, me, Michael, Roger, Lara, and it left an impression on me. I really liked it. I'm like, 
mm-hmm. there's a lot of merit to this. Because I remember growing up, like when I was young, my dad and I were watching a movie, a DVD, and there was some, I think, or I think there was some teasers for upcoming movies, right? And one of them was like Hellraiser 6 or 7 or whatever Hellraiser sequel <laughs> they were promoting. And I was like, oh, that that looks cool. And my dad's like, no, Hellraiser's awful. Hellraiser's terrible. It's awful. It's no good. <laughs> I watched it and I almost threw up. And I was like, oh, really? Is it that bad? And he's like, yeah, it's the worst. It's, it's super scary. And there's so much blood and blah, 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 blah. And that was like my first impression with Hellraiser. So every time I saw Pinhead... It freaked out your dad. <laughs> it freaked out my dad. Oh, it very much did. Um, and so did that every- make you more curious about it? Or, oh, well, then that's not for me because it freaked out my dad. No, I thought it wasn't for me because it was a horror okay. film. And at this point in time, I just wasn't fucking with horror films. You know, I was just like, I'm not interested. So I was like, all right. He's saying all these negative things. I'm just going to move away. And it wasn't until I started seeing the fun side of horror, you know, because because the, the way I got into horror was watching The Conjuring and the it's a scary movie, but it made it feel like it was a like a Halloween horror or, or like Halloween, like a universal Halloween horror nights maze. Mm-hmm. It was scary, but it was fun. There was some fun mm-hmm. aspect to it that. I don't know. It's just like, oh, I, I really want to know what happens. So yeah. when I started seeing horror from that fun angle, that's when I started going in deep. And then I started de- dwelling into stuff that wasn't necessarily fun. I would say Hellraiser's fun. For, yeah, I would say so too. It, I think my dad may have been a little overdramatic. Because mm-hmm. this is not... I, I, a horror movie I don't ever really want to talk about or watch again is Hostile. <laughs> but yeah. I feel like we I feel like we have to do it at some point for the podcast. Eventually. Uh but that's know, that's like a different kind of genre. There's oh, like yeah. there's several different genres of horror. There's so many. So, like, so, just, so saying oh Hellraiser is a horror film is kind of like a, a it's like you have to like work your way up to something like Hellraiser. And you probably have to work your way over to something like Hostel. Yes. Or maybe that's just like your thing. I don't know. I'm not really crazy about that subgenre of horror movies that look yeah. like Saw and, and Hostel and, and stuff like that. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I mean, I couldn't. If you had shown me Hellraiser before The Conjuring, I think I might it might have freaked me out. I, I don't know. I think I needed to have that fun horror horror experience, and then I started going in deeper, and then I went into the Halloween, the Nightmare on Elm Streets, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like I, it's not just you know you can't just suddenly go into straight horror if you weren't a fan of it. Here's just, a, I have a list of some of the horror sub, subgenres, right? Just so, and these aren't just a, a few of them. There's so many. But just to give you an idea as to, it, since since it's Halloween and it's a spooky month, these are some of the subgenres of uh, of horror films. Uh, so you have Supernatural, like your Hereditary, Exorcist, Shining, Psychological. You've got Black Swan, The Lighthouse, Twin Peaks, Fire Walk With Me. You've got Slashers, obviously Scream, Halloween, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You've got New French Extremities, like Inside Martyrs, Them, Found Footage, Paranormal Activity, Rack, Blair Witch Project. You've got Folk, Midsommar, The Witch, or The Vavitch, <laughs> Wicker Man, Kale List. You've got Cosmic Horror, like Alien, The Mist, Annihilation, The Thing, which we'll be, we'll be talking about The Thing later on, so... Oh, we, we're, we're touching on all the different uh, subgenres, huh? 
there's a there's a few. You've got Japanese horror. You've got German expressionism with Nosferatu and the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. You've got body horror with Dan, the, the, David Cronenberg, uh, Tyke Tame that came out. <laughs> you've got art house. You've got comedy, comedy horror. You've, uh, Young Frankenstein, The Evil Dead, What We Do in the Shadows. You've got romantic horror films. Bram Stoker's Dracula is one oh, that we're comes. We're doing all of them, dude. Yeah, well, we're, we're covering them, man. Them. Yeah, you've got and how exciting you've got cannibalism like the silence of the lambs cannibal holocaust you've got torture porn which is where hostile kind of fits in so you've got all these subgenres, right that's what mm-hmm. makes it so cool and hellraiser is probably like a cosmic horror and it has huge undertones of-, of sexual tension yeah it's so, a horny horror. Hor- horny horror. I like. I like that horny. I like that horny <laughs> horror. It is horny horror. Uh, yeah. So let's talk about what movies came out this year at the box office. Well, Hellraiser was a million dollars, and it made fourteen million dollars at the domestic box office. So that's pretty good, you know. If you, if I may put one dollar, I make ten dollars for every one dollar that I spent. Pretty much. Yeah. That's- that's all right. $14 for every $1 I spent. Not mm-hmm. the exact. Um, but at the domestic box office for 1987, number one was Beverly Hills Cop 2. Mm. Number two, Platoon. Number three, Fatal Attraction. Ooh. Number four, The Untouchables. Number five, Three Men and a Baby. Number six, The Secret of My Success. Number seven, Stakeout. Number eight, Lethal Weapon, and then number nine, The Witches of Eastwick, and number ten, Predator. Now, you're probably thinking, I've heard these movies before, and I still don't know what the secret of my success is about. <laughs> because we've gone back to this movie, this year. This will be our f- our fourth time going back to 1987. Fourth time? Fourth time. Well, Hellraiser 1, Predator mm-hmm. 2. Predator? Mm-hmm. What other movie? Dirty Dancing, and RoboCop. That's right. Damn, we love 1987. 1987 and 1986, I feel like, are years we are going to be returning to. Because it's still in this year, movies that we haven't talked about. Full Metal Jacket. Oh. Um, Spaceballs. Okay. The Running Man. <laughs> the oh, Lost man. Boys. The Princess Bride. The Princess Bride is like one of my top 10 favorite movies of all time. Well, maybe those will be the times we'll go back. There's a lot. The Secret to My Success. That's the Michael J. Fox one, right? Yeah. Do you okay. remember what it's about? Uh, He is working his way up in the company, but he's like a slacker or something like that. He made up an identity or something. Yeah, something like that. Like he cheats his way to the top. I don't they all. Yeah, that's that's what I was thinking. like. Yeah, they all to a certain extent. Yeah, man. I listening to that list, I was like, wait, I feel like I've heard some of these again. Deja vu. Yeah, but I mean, 1987. I mean, the, the 80s were a wild time for movies. Yeah, and the movies that we covered that year, from that year, are just so radically different from each other. I don't know. I I feel like there was something special about all of these movies. Something that is the reason why we still talk about them today. It's why they're still getting sequels today. What makes this interesting is that Hellraiser is actually getting a reboot. It's a straight-to-Hulu film. And Hulu, in my in my opinion, is one for one in resurrecting these 
80, 80s franchises. Because Prey is incredible. I still have yet to watch it, but well, I have better because we're gonna do a a Patreon episode on it. Absolutely, I have had multiple people come up to me and say that Prey was phenomenal. That they listened to our episode, they watched Prey, and they loved it. And I'm like, cool, that's that's awesome. I I like that. Um, so I mean, yeah, Hulu resurrected Prey. It was a smash hit. People loved it. I'm really curious to see what this Hellraiser reboot is like. Because it's a reboot. They Pinhead has been recast. They gender swapped him. So it's no so Pinhead in the new one is no longer played by uh Doug Bradley. Which is interest it's well this is getting into Hellraiser like lore, but Pinhead was never named in the original Hellraiser. He was credited as the lead Cenobite. Mm. It's not until the sequels where he gets named. And then there's one where he gets an origin story. But yeah, so we'll see how this uh, Hellraiser reboot plays out. Hulu resurrected Predator and made a smash hit. It could do the same with Hellraiser. I mean, Hellraiser needs it, man. It's the the one good one was the first one. And and the second one was interesting. Um, I liked it. But uh, yeah, I'm really curious. Uh, Just want to rewatch. I'm basically just rewatching a year after later, but... I liked it. Maybe I'll notice something a little bit different. I am curious to see kind of w- how this was received by the masses because it made 14 million. So people saw it. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. it did just pique people's curiosity and be the BDSM. And I'm also curious as to see just what what are some of these metaphors? What are, what are some of these symbols and what is it really trying to say? Because I don't think Clive Barker is saying that sex is a bad thing. Even though no. characters are punished, I don't think for... he could say that. No, no, no. <laughs> I don't think I don't think that's the case. But char- but if you look at the premise of the film, it's characters that are being tormented, but also sexually aroused through these torture mechanics that the Cenobites are putting them through. So I I don't know. You know what I mean? Like it's it's a puzzle trying to put it together. But I'm actually excited to. I'm I'm excited to hear all the lines again because I feel like this movie has some really great lines. Mm, yeah. Oh, wait, 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 wait. I forgot to say where to watch this movie. Oh. I bet it's on Hulu. I'll buy that for a dollar. I'll buy that for a dollar. <laughs> this, this is a random callback to RoboCop. I love it. Oh, I, I don't think it is on Hulu. It's not on Hulu. They're dropping the ball, dude. Yeah, they I don't see. They put all the Predator movies on Hulu. Well, I guess if you want to watch this movie... Um, you can watch it for free on Tubi and Pluto TV. Uh, you can also stream it on Amazon and YouTube and Google and all that stuff. Um, I'll be doing one of those. Um, but it, be warned, it is kind of a graphic movie. Um, it's not like a, a fun, happy time like Hocus Pocus. So just be warned. It's pretty graphic, but I like it. It, look, if if there's genuine curiosity for it, just watch a little bit of it. You know, some stuff happens in the beginning, and if you're not for it, then just pause it and come back to it. There are so many types of horror films. Maybe this isn't the first one you need to jump into, but I th- I feel like if you you know if if you're willing to, then you you might get you might walk out being like, oh, maybe I like this horror stuff. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, we will see you in one minute.
beyond any terror you have imagined. A nightmare. No. Unlike anything you have witnessed. Is born. Because within these walls, the unholy is unleashed. Hello, everybody. We are back from watching Clive Barker's Hellraiser from 1987. Yeah, it was an interesting rewatch because uh, I had seen this like a year ago, right? Or close mm-hmm. to it. Uh, actually, probably like a year. And I did notice a few things that may, I don't think, have aged well from that time. I uh, think there's some things in the beginning that's like, man. This is a neural amateur production. And then it like, once it gets going, it's like, oh, okay, no, 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 no. This is, this is the work of, you could see some like, okay, this is special. You know what I mean? Well, I'm not so much as referring to the production, but something in the story that kind of mm. rewatching, I was like, oh, that's a little, that's a little strange. And it kind of muddles what the film, or I don't know if it, I feel a little conflicted about it. So that's why I'm. Something that weirds me out about it a little bit. But overall, it's still really enjoyable. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I think it goes without saying that if you are not into horror films, if you don't like gore or violence or like stuff like that, I I don't think you're going to like this movie. It's really not yeah, for you. Yeah, it's a pretty gross movie at points. Yeah, it very much is. And I mean, that's kind of the point of the film. Mm-hmm. But if you're just not for that, then I can't see you enjoying this movie at all. But I think if you're someone who's been, obviously, if you're an avid horror fan, like you would have already seen this movie. But I think if you're someone who's like dipping their toes into horror, like I said previously, this isn't the first movie you should go to. But I think this would be a good movie to watch along the way because there's some really cool things in this movie. Like visually, this movie is spectacular, especially with some of the effects. And obviously, Pinhead has become a villainous phenomenon pinhead right this is kind of his debut and he's really cool like he's a villain Mm -hmm. but he's kind of like the design is really cool and like just the way he talks and like his lines are really great like they're very yeah they're very quotable and it's funny because he's you know he's kind of along the same lines as like Hannibal Lecter from a silence the silence of the lambs with like what's his name Anthony Hopkins like Anthony Hopkins was not in that movie for a long time. But in the amount of time that he was there, he made a strong impression. Kind of the same thing with Pinhead. He he doesn't he's not even referred to as Pinhead. As you mentioned before him, his name wasn't Pinhead originally. It was just uh the lead um Cenobite. Cenobite. Cenobite, yeah. I wasn't until the sequel where they called him Pinhead, but he left such a strong impression in that first one. It's like, oh, we want more of this guy. We want to know exactly mm-hmm. what he's about, where he comes from, which we do get in the sequel. Um so it's kind of like signs of the lambs you know they're kind of on the same, same yeah you footing. have a uh, a villain that's like okay he's a bad guy but he's very elegant mm-hmm. he's very well spoken and there's some kind of uh commanding presence that they have there's there's like a very intense stare that they have it's i don't know it's like ooh, tell me more <laughs> yeah exactly it's tell me more exactly and i mean it's funny because i'm now that i'm thinking about it like 
Pinhead and Hannibal Lecter have a bit more in common, like in terms of like the way they carry themselves. And obviously one's human and another is like a demonic entity or something like, I, I you know, angel like to demons some. to some angels to others. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, Pinhead is so cool in this and that he's just fascinating to watch. So even in that regard, even if you don't like the rest of the movie, just watch it for Pinhead. Like this is the, his first film. So you might as well just give it a shot, you know? He is not the, like, main villain. Like, he's not yes. in it a lot. He's not like Freddy or Michael Myers or any of them who are, like, always chasing the the attractive stars of the movie, right? Like, he's, like, the, the end game. Like, okay, he's there, but only in, like, five minutes of the movie, maybe? Ten minutes of the movie? Five to ten minutes of the movie, I think. Yeah, which I will say a lot of people, some people not having seen this movie will think that's a negative. I think that's a positive. Mm-hmm. And I'll explain why later. But you are right. He is not the Jason or the Michael Myers. He is like, you know, he's kind of like the Thanos in like the Avengers 2012. Where like you have like, you know, you've got a Loki, but there's a bigger threat out there. You know, kind of. In mm-hmm. you know, it's not one for one, but eh, you know, he's like uh, the what's in in Doctor Strange. Like, there's Calcinius, who's like the main bad guy, but then there's Dormammu, Dormammu, who's like the big bad, but is not in it very much. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you're right. He, and actually, you know, Doctor Strange and Kirsten, you know, kind of outwit the bad guy in a way. They make a deal with the bad guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it's wow. Not Kirst- I think it's Kirsty. Kirsty, it- Kristen, Kirsten. Kirsty. That I and R switching it up fucks me it's up. It's the same with uh, Kristen Dunst and Kirsten Stewart. I might have mixed that up. Might no, it's Kristen Stewart. Kristen, Kristen is K R I. But uh, Kirsten, I'm just going to say Kirsten because I, I, I've kind of. Her name of- is Kirsty. Kirsty Cotton. Kirsty. Kirsty. See, bro, I can't say that. I can't say that. Yes, you can. Christy? Kier? 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 Stee. Stee. Kier There you go. Kier did it. So, actually, wow, that's kind of interesting. There's, like, some similarities between Doctor Strange and Hellraiser. Oh, yeah. Basically, I really enjoy this movie. And I do have some Me issues too. with it. But, I mean, as a whole, it is still an enjoyable watch. Uh, com- mm-hmm. Well, let's just get into it. Uh, let's get into it. Yeah, so... I recommend the film. Awesome. Would you recommend it? Yes, I recommend it. But I will say it is very graphic. And if blood and guts bothers you, there's a lot of it in this movie. But if you still want to listen to the episode, you can listen to the summary of me trying to describe the movie to you or anyone who's maybe seen the movie but kind of forgets what happens in it. This part is for you. Okay, so it starts off in Morocco. And you have very dirty fingernails put down some money (laughs) and they buy his character frank cotton he's like the main bad guy he buys a puzzle box and we don't really know what the puzzle box is but it's something special and the guy he buys it from is like he says something cryptic like oh it belongs to you but then again it always did and then the guy he goes into this like dark room with candles lit around and he is like playing with the box very sensually i might add um and then all of a sudden these like chains appear there's like this these like wooden blocks with like 
chains around them and then the Cenobites appear and all the hooks like go into Frank and it's implied that he is torn apart because the lead Cenobite is like assembling his face in like the, the bloody mess on the floor. And then in a flash, everything is reset and the room goes back to normal. Then uh, we have the a newly, they're not newly weds, but they're a, a, a married couple, uh, Larry, who is Frank's brother, and Julia, who is his wife. She's very unhappy in the marriage, and Larry's like a milk toast, I guess is the word. He's kind of plain vanilla. He's like kind of boring, um, and he's, they're trying to like work on their marriage, and they've moved back to Julia's home turf to uh, try to give, start a new life, start start over. Um, and they're like moving around. They're, they're looking around the apartment. It's disgusting. He's talking about his brother who's might have wanted to use the place as a squatting to, to squat in. I think their grandmother died or something. They don't really say why. They don't actually say what city they're in, which might, it might be a little confusing, but there's actually a reason for that. Julia has a British accent. Uh, but everybody else speaks like regular or American English, not regular English. I'm sorry. Um, so she's unhappy. She's like, yeah, whatever. The place is a dump. Um, and then she sees like this bed that's just, just a mattress and a lot of trash. And there's like a, a figure with like two people having sex. And then Larry's like, ah, my brother Frank was here. And then Julie's like, Frank? And she goes into this kind of flashback. So it's alluded that she had a sexual affair with Frank. Um, and then she's like, all right, we can move in here. They start um, moving stuff in. Um, he, Larry calls his daughter um, Kirsty, And Kirsty doesn't like Julia. You can tell in the way that she talks about her. And he's like, oh, come over by the house. Like, we can... Or maybe you'll you'll like it here. So they start moving stuff in. There's some creepy like moving guys who like look at Julia. Then they look at uh, Kirsty and they make some like lewd comments like, "Oh, she's got her mother's looks." And uh, Larry's like, "Her mother's dead." Uh, so it's like, "Oh, she's the stepmom kind of situation. That's why she doesn't like her." Uh, and Julia, uh, she has all these pic. She looks through Frank's stuff and she sees a picture and she cuts off the woman that he's with there are a lot of like dirty pictures of him having sex with a lot of different women but she tears apart so it's just his face and she like is lost in the memory of when she met him and then the sex that they had and how good he was in bed um and then he vanished and she's like oh frank and as she's doing this larry cuts his hand on a nail and he's bleeding profusely and he goes into the attic where julia is and his blood gets into the floorboards and she's like okay let's take you to the hospital and then you have this like creepy like rebirth uh frank appears from the floorboards and the whatever goop on the floor uh he just appears like a like a zombie uh there's this dinner party and you can tell julia is not into it she excuses herself and then she meets frank and she's like, oh, my God, what is this? And then he's like, I'm Frank. And he's like, well, I need more blood. It'll make me whole. I was assembled for my brother's blood. You got to bring me more. And then she's like, okay. 
<laughs> and she starts bringing guys over to the house. She leads them upstairs in like they think they're gonna have sex with her, but then she kills them with the hammer. And Frank takes their like absorbs their blood, absorbs their like soul almost, and he's looks more human as the the movie goes on. Like a like his skin has been flayed off. He does this. They do this like three times, and Frank wants to kill Larry, but for some reason. Julia's like, oh, no, you can't kill him yet. Uh, and Kirsty is, like, kind of suspicious of Julia. She ends up talking to Larry about her, and Larry's like, oh, she just needs some, like, a woman-to-woman -woman friend or something. Could you go by and check her out when, when she's at the house? So then she's like, okay. She goes over, and she sees... Julia leading another guy up, up to the, the house. And she's like, oh, she's having an affair. So she goes into the house. And then she sees the guys like dying. And she sees Frank. Uh, and she's like, what the hell? Monsters, murder, what's happening? And then she finds out that it's actually her uncle, Frank. And there's some kind of unspoken history between them. Because he's a real pervert. And he's saying some really creepy things about his niece. And then as they struggle, he's trying to like kill her and stuff. She finds the, the box, the, the box that summoned Pinhead. And he's like, give me that box. And she's like, no. And then she throws it out the window. Uh, and then she re recovers it and she runs away. And as she's running, she passes out and she wakes up in a hospital. And the, the doctors there are like, oh, you need to tell us what happened. Because you are hanging on to this for dear life. And they leave her alone, lock her in the room. And then she's playing with the box and she accidentally like opens it and she sees the hallway like this hallway is is like summoned she goes down there's a crazy monster that's called the engineer that chases her down the hallway and then she meets the cenobites and then they're like you summoned us you opened the box come with us and she's like no i don't wanna and the, the, one of them had he's called the chatterer he puts his hands in her mouth it's very very sensual um, <laughs> <laughs> and she realizes that Frank escaped the, the Cenobites. So she's like, okay, well, I know, I know Frank, he escaped you guys. If I lead you to him, you can take him instead of me. And they're like, all right, maybe, maybe we'll take you up on this offer. But if you cheat us, we'll tear your soul apart. And then they leave. And then she tries to warn her dad. Like, hey, your brother's trying to kill you and your wife is in on it. So they go, she goes over to the, the house and she, her dad's like acting real weird. Uh, he's got blood all over him and she tries to tell him about Frank and he's like, I had to put Frank down like a rabid dog. And then she's led to the body of like this bloody skeleton and the Cenobites appear and they're like, we want the man who did this. And she's like, no, it's my dad. I'm not going to let you take him. And she goes over to the to her dad and she's like, we got to go because the monsters are after you. And then she finds out Frank has actually killed Larry and is like wearing his face. So she fights them off. She fights them off. She digs her like nails into his, his face and like punches him, like rips out his guts a little bit. And she's oh, like yeah. running away. Julia catches her and she's right about to kill uh Frank is about to kill Kirsty, but she moves out of the way and puts Julia into the knife. And then Frank is like, nothing personal, Julia. And then he takes her soul, takes her blood, and she dies. Um, and then he 
there's like this really like creepy chase scene where they go into a different room in the attic and there's like the one of the best jump scares in the movie with this Jesus statue that comes out. Um, and then she ends up leading him into the attic where it all began and the Cenobites appear and they're like, you, you escaped us and we're taking you back. And then they put all, they throw out their chains and they grab Frank and they just rip him apart again. And then Kirstie's like, all right, I'm done. I'm going to leave this house. But the Cenobites are like, actually, we like you too. So she has to, like, figure out the box as the Cenobites are trying to get her. She's able to, like, dismiss them back to their realm one by one. Her boyfriend arrives at the house and he tries to help and she's like, stop it. <laughs> she, she solves the box at the last second and then, like, the house maybe burns down. And there's this, like, weird guy that's been following Kirstie, like, throughout the entire film. And then he it's revealed that he's actually, like, a a pterodactyl zombie skeleton monster thing. And then he he takes the, the box, which is called the Lament Configuration. He flies away with it and apparently gives it back to the guy in the beginning of the movie. And that's the end. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting movie. And okay, right off the top, I think what I love about this movie most is that it's actually a story. It's a story mm-hmm. of romance. Which I wasn't expecting. Lust, maybe? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Lust, romance, um, like betrayal. Like it's it's mm-hmm. like a it's like a telenovela, <laughs> but with a lot of horror and blood. Because okay, yeah. so here's so here's kind of my frame of reference approaching this movie, not having ever seen it and knowing that Pinhead was the devil himself, according to my dad, was that the movie was <laughs> literally torture porn. As we've talked about in the first part, it's basically just movies that glorify torture for whatever reason, right? Which I'm not about. I don't really particularly like that. So I was expecting a movie where people got tortured for the hell of it and that, you know, it was a bunch of... That's all it was. But watching it, I'm like, oh my god, there's an actual story here. Like, yeah, there's like a relationship at the very center between Larry and... um, uh, What's her name? Um, Julia? Julia. Larry is the the dad, yeah. like the the boring but not murderous Cotton. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. He yeah. The the average Joe, Julia and Larry, and kind of just how it's stale and stuff. And it's really Julia, kind of lusting over Frank and like you know being obsessed with him in a way. Not obsessed, but just like she's obsessed with the sex that he can provide. Exactly, and that's I mean it's a it's a basic plot, but it's one that I didn't imagine was going to be in the movie you know i i didn't picture that and knowing the fact that like there's an entire scene in the movie where julia is like mentally revisiting or like mentally revisiting the moment where she first met frank and when they were intimate i'm assuming for the first time yeah they have sex on her wedding dress yeah and it's not like just a short 30 second scene like it goes on for a bit like and it's not just the sex too it's like the conversation, the sex. Also, that's intercut with um, Larry injuring his hand on the nail. So it's it's like intimate and you kind of feel for Julia. Like, that's the thing. We don't like what Julia's doing, but I get where she's coming from. Like, I understand. And to a certain extent, I sympathize with what she's going through. And I did not expect that in this movie. I expected blood and guts being tossed around 
and just a boring film with no substance. And here I am and I'm like, oh, there's like an actual dramatic element to this movie. And there's something thematically that's interesting with the whole like pain and uh, and and sex Pain and pleasure. Pain and pleasure kind of... To the the Cenobites, pain and pleasure are no longer distinguishable. Yeah. And I think that's kind of something that they want to impart on, like, the people who open up the the cube. The lament configuration. It's really interesting because when you put these two scenes together, right? Mm -hmm. When you're interrupting one scene with another immediately, you're trying to draw a connection between those two ideas or between those two scenes. Right. And here right. it's it's these two different ideas, one of pleasure and one of pain. And it's one that I don't think a lot of people have or majority of people haven't really put together is that pain and pleasure are kind of or what I think what Clyde Barker is trying to do is maybe insinuate that maybe pain and pleasure have more in common than we would like to think. Right. And that's kind of like what the movie's starting off that way. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I didn't I didn't picture that. Like, I didn't know that that was going to be something that was going to be talked about in the film. I just thought it was, Mm -hmm. again, torture porn. So the movie catches caught me off guard like that. And that's when I realized, like, oh, there's an actual story to this. And as the movie goes on, it kind of unfolds like, oh, my God, like, she's mad horny for Frank. That She's willing to kill the dude. Now, don't get me yeah. wrong. These guys are kind of scummy, the ones that she brings in, because they think they're getting a fast fuck. Yeah, but... yeah. one one guy is like, he's getting upset. and He's like getting kind of forceful. He's like, yeah, change your mind, are you? Yeah. Oh, my God, dude. Yeah. But as it goes on, like the guys are like, the second guy's kind of scummy, too. He knows that she's married and this is an affair kind of thing. But the third guy, she basically drags him in. Yeah, he's like, oh, I just don't get out much. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think that was the. I think that was kind of the. I think that was them very intentionally, right? Because at at first she does not want to do it, or she wants to do it, but she finds it very difficult to go through with it because she's not a killer. But then having the man kind of almost force himself and say, "You're not going to change your mind," it's kind of like it get. That's what she needs to get to go through with the first kill. But by the third time. The third guy isn't really particularly scummy. Like, he doesn't say or do anything that's, like, outright offensive. You know what I mean? Right. And I, th- I feel like by by that time, she's seeing Frank, like, more like his old self. Like, at that point, he's, like, wearing a suit, smoking a cigarette. And she's seeing the, the guy, the guy that she had sex with. The only guy that could ever make her come, I think, one article said. <laughs> well, um, well, that's true. Because when Frank first materializes, he's, like, just bones practically with a little bit of sinew but uh by the by that point he already has a lot of muscle tissue he has a more defined face and features and stuff but i think what's what's really interesting too is that by that point julia is getting used to it like remember the whole thing about like watching like where larry's watching the boxing match and he's like he comments saying oh this isn't something that you would normally like and she's like well i kind of just gotten used to it i've seen worse you, I mean, and she has. There's this She's like done worse. Yeah, there's like this little change in her character that now she's getting used to it. And by that point, doesn't matter if you're a good person or a bad person. She doesn't. She just wants to get Frank back. And I think that's one of the reasons why she doesn't want to kill Larry early on. Is that killing a person already is really difficult. Now, killing someone that you're married to, that I'm assuming she did have some feelings towards, must be a lot harder. The problem 
is that Larry won't give her the big O. And, <laughs> and I mean, that's, this is sad, but it's true. I mean, how many women can actually say that they have had equal number of orgasms in their marriages or relationships? Like, I mean, that's, women's orgasms are like, they have like their own bad reputation, right? <laughs> Where it's like, man, I don't know what I could do. Just nothing works, bro. And, and it's, <laughs> and seeing Larry kind of, seeing that marriage from that angle is both like it's kind of tragic but i also get where julia's coming from and that's what i love about it it's that she's not she's not a hateful bitch she's not a character that's like villainous for the sake of villainy like there's something that she wants and it's something that is kind of relatable yes not to the extent that she takes it but it is there's like a okay i get it i don't approve Mm mm-hmm but I understand. <laughs> no, no, no. And and I honestly, I think that's the best thing that a movie could do. It's like, hey, like, put you in that position where it's like, I wouldn't do that, but I get it. Like, you've set mm-hmm. things up to the point where this character doing this makes sense. Like, it makes sense from a logical perspective, and I, and I sympathize with it, right? The challenge in playing Julia was portraying a character with highly complex motivation. I hope you see her reasons for being an unpleasant cold character at the beginning because hopefully you see why she's like that how she came to be like that and the depths that she's prepared to plumb for love please I'll do anything you want anything the reaction I've had from people on set for instance after having, after they'd seen the rushes of the killings, I mean, nobody would speak to me. But it was because a woman was doing it, basically. And I think all the women in the audience would be going, absolutely, yes. The men might be um, locking up the tool sheds. It's so, like, explicitly the sex, because there's nothing else happening for Frank. He's disgusting. His fingernails are dirtier than the guy that he buys the cube from. His living condition, all the Horrible. dishes, all the rats, all the maggots, all the mold. That's just how he lives. And he's fine with it. As long as he has his creepy sex doll, it's it's fine. I think we said this earlier, but I think one of the coolest, coolest things about this movie is that Pinhead is not the main villain. It's Frank. Mm. Frank is the main villain. He's the asshole that we love to hate. I did not expect that. Again, from the poster of the movie, you have Hellraiser and then you've got Pinhead, right? Right. You're expecting this guy to be the main villain, to be chasing Kirsten. Ashley Lawrence is the actor. So you can say Ashley Lawrence's character, if that's easier for you. Ashley Lawrence, Ashley's character. Uh, You expect Pinhead to be chasing after Ashley's character, like after Ashley. You expect kind of like a Michael Myers-esque or Jason or Freddy Cougar kind of thing. No, that that's not what happens at all. Fred, Pinhead's barely in the movie. And Ashley doesn't know about him until way later into the film. Frank is the main villain. He's the guy that we dislike. And I did not expect that. It's the other guy, you know, <laughs> the other yeah. man, your brother, Larry's brother. Yeah. And that is He's... so TV novella. Like, I mm-hmm. honestly, like if you if you took away the parts of Pinhead, right, and the box and you took that like marriage story, it's definitely a TV novella. Like a Mexican telenovela. It's uh, it works. Mexican soap opera. Mexican soap opera. And it is so cool that I, I love that. <laughs> I do. I think there's something really 
intriguing about those like I, I guess uh, I trashy I put it in air quotes stories like I my favorite show of all time is Twin Peaks but there's a lot of like soap opera ness about it and it's very self-aware of that there's like a soap opera that the characters are watching that parallels the events of the show it's i don't know there's something about that that's just what happens next you know there's something really engrossing about it it i think that's the best thing what happens next and with this movie i found myself thinking that well what happens what's going to happen next because typically some a rule of thumb that i use when watching or that i have when watching a movie is that when Something is kind of set up to a certain extent. I expect it to go through, right? So, right. for example, like um, one of the one of the biggest examples is Breaking Bad, right? Like I know it's not a movie; it's a TV show, but just bear with me. So, with Breaking Bad, Walt is cooking methamphetamine, right? And one of the things that one of the main things that they go to is maintaining the secrecy. Like his family cannot know. So, as a viewer, the way I think about things, I'm like, okay, that secret is eventually going to come out. And it's going to be like a big moment. It's going to be a big explosive thing. Why? Because that creates drama and tension and suspense. So when I see that Frank comes back, right? When you see Julia and Frank being intimate with each other and Frank comes back, I know that this marriage is going to come ahead. Like is going to come to a head. That there is going to be mm-hmm. a confrontation between Larry and Frank. Or that this this marriage is going to face... One of its biggest hurdles. Now, what exactly is going to happen? One of its biggest hurdles. Well, I mean, well, because you don't know if you don't know if Frank's going to kill. I mean, early on, you don't know if Frank's going to kill Larry. You don't know if Larry's going to kill Frank. If Julia's gonna betray Frank and and oh my God, Larry, you were the one for me. You know, like you don't know what's going to happen. So, but but you know. know something's going to go down. You know something's going to go down. It's really funny how like. Larry just think, is like, man, there's something wrong with, with Julia and I. Uh, Kirsty, can you go talk to her girl to girl? Like, that's that's how he thinks of this situation. But in reality, she's she's killing people to bring back his zombified brother mm-hmm. who is trapped in a hell dimension and who's escaping from hell wardens, basically. <laughs> like It's so much worse than what you think it is, Larry. I don't... I don't know. I I feel like I didn't ever think Larry would would make it out of, of this I, movie alive. I didn't think so either. But you you never know is the thing. Like I can't say that I predicted the plot of the movie. I just knew that there was right. obviously going to lead something between that love triangle, which is pretty obvious. Like people are like listening to this and being like, "Duh," you know. But I'm like, but that's what kept me going. It wasn't the gore effects. It wasn't. Oh my god, when is Pinhead gonna come back? It was the story of this marriage. This, this marriage that's disintegrating. And I loved it. I'm here for it. I thought it was fantastic. <laughs> and in the fact that you have a horror film that has me interested in that stuff, I think you did a phenomenal job because yeah. that's the point. It's the story. We're not watching horror. I mean, you're, we're not supposed to watch horror movies just for the scary parts. We're supposed to see it as a whole, right? How does this all work? It's like watching people will just watch action movies just for the action scenes, which which is a certain way to watch them. But if that's the case, I don't think the writer-director of that particular film did a good job because it's supposed to be all-encompassing. Die Hard isn't one of the best action films of all time because it had cool action scenes. It had that, but it had characters and it had plot. It all worked together. And that's why I really like Hellraiser. My biggest mm-hmm. surprise. <laughs> <laughs> I Again, I was literally not expecting this at all. And here you have a film that just slaps me across the face. It's like... 
oh, just you wait. I felt bad for Larry, right? I did feel bad for Larry. I feel like he was in way over his head. And I wish I wish his friends were more honest with him. You know, I wish they would say, like, it's so obvious to, to the viewer, to the audience. They're like, okay, she's kissing everybody goodnight except for her husband. Well, and they're all just going to go back to partying afterwards. <laughs> I get... I do get where Larry's coming from because to a certain extent, I think Larry's like, because he says that she doesn't like moving. And I think when you have like some tensions like that, I guess you either hope that they go away or that the other person will kind of snap out of it or that they'll approach you and say, hey, I've been having these problems or this is where I've been at mentally. Because Larry isn't like, he doesn't seem like the type to like ignore her or to push her away or to be like, shut up, woman. Get back in the kitchen. Like, it doesn't seem like he's that guy. He just seems clueless, which I mean, yeah, aren't most guys kind of clueless to this stuff? I mean, mm-hmm. if I'm being honest, like it just <laughs> is. Um, yeah. And and Larry just seems like that guy. But what I like about it, too, is that it's kind of comical how he's so unaware of what's happening around him, like with a portal to hell being on uh, in his house. And his brother being this bloody walking corpse is like basically like in his ceiling or whatever. But it's never really played for laughs, if that makes sense. Like, it's not I don't think like it's purposely like if you think it's funny, but the movie's not like, you know, (laughs) like it's not it's not done that way. It's done kind of kind of uh, in a weird way, sincerely. If mm-hmm. that's the appropriate word, because it's like he doesn't get what's happening, but you know he's in that way over his head. He's way over his head, but he knows something's wrong. He just doesn't yeah. know how to approach it. And the fact that, you know, what it really is, is maybe his sexual libido isn't like up to what Julia wants. Um, right. But but even that's like, what's the fix for that? You know, because it seems like Julia has a much quicker sexual attraction to Frank. Because even when she opens the door, she looks at him. She's like, wow, he's the look that she has is, wow, he's gorgeous. She doesn't look at Larry that that way. They're never really. No. She never looks at Larry with like tender eyes like, oh, my God, you are handsome. I want to fuck the shit out of you. Like she <laughs> never looks at him that way. But Frank opens the door and she instantly goes to bed with him. When she's engaged, on top of her wedding dress. <laughs> but 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 if you're Larry, what are you supposed to do? Like, divorce. Well, the divorce is the option. But he loves her. Does he? It I seems like he does. Or I think he does love her. He just wishes. Well, I don't know. Maybe he just wishes she was more honest with him. So it's it's tough being Larry, man. I don't I don't know what <laughs> I don't know what that guy would do. I don't know what he should do. I mean, divorce. I mean hindsight 2020 he should have divorced her he should have left should have never moved should have never fucking moved but you know it is what it is and we got this movie and i'll I'll say this i love the actors particularly i love the uh julia's actress oh yeah everyone did a really good job i think i i really liked kirstie i think this was one of the first movies she was in i think she did a great job yeah this is this was the first movie she was in first feature-length movie she was in nice i I couldn't tell honestly um i think she's stand like in this pool of like slashers where you have like a bunch of teens like i think she's a cut above most of them you know i wouldn't say she's like jamie lee curtis but she's up there uh or she's higher than most 
But I think the show the the show stealer for me is Claire Higgins as Julia. She mm-hmm. is phenomenal. She's so good in this movie. That scene where she's like remembering her first time with Frank, you know, and and the movie's really clever about it because you're you're cutting. That seems really interesting because you're cutting between Julia on top where she's remembering Frank to a flashback where she's having sex with Frank. And then you're cutting back to the scene where Larry's downstairs trying to carry that bed. But it all all moves really smoothly, smoothly between each Very other. Very smoothly. I, yeah. I feel like that's the part of the movie where, where I, you realize, okay, this is the work of someone who's really good at making movies. Well, this person you know I mean? has a vision. Like they know they how to- vision. They know how to put this together because there were moments where I was like, oh, this is connecting really well. Like this shot makes sense next to this one. Mm. And even though this is in the past and that's in the present, but oh, I get exactly what you're doing here. And I love that. And Claire or uh, Claire plays that scene really well because you could just tell that she wants Frank at that moment. Ooh. Yeah. Like there's there's that weird part where uh Kirstie, she goes upstairs to look for Julia, and she knows that Julia's upstairs because she can hear her walking around. But Julia's just like not responding to her, like, "No, I'm, I'm busy. I'm in a moment." It's, it's so, like, she knows that even thinking about Frank is, is like some active transgression. So she's gonna do that in private. Exactly. No, but, uh, but Claire Higgins is spectacular. I think she's my favorite. I think Julia is my favorite character in this whole film. Like, I was loving what she was doing. Mm. I loved following her story. Man, what a shit. What a shit thing. I mean, again, what she's doing is wrong. But, like, when Frank kills her and he's like, nothing personal. I'm just like, oh, my God, Frank, you're the worst. The worst. Like, please. You can see it it coming because of all his pictures that he has of all the women he slept with, Julia is not in them at all. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because the first time she sees the picture, she picks one and you just see Frank's face in it. And you see her like take it with her, like sneak it with her in a in a pocket or bag or something. And then when you're reintroduced to that picture, you see the whole thing and you see that's not even Julia that he's with. So she tears apart the 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 half with the other woman in there. Well, you see that like, he's been dude, with he's been with multiple women. Yeah, it's like she doesn't see that he's not valuable to her at all no it, but it kind of foreshadows that she's disposable well no no absolutely it totally does but damn that dude dicked her down real good because she don't even <laughs> care she wants him she'll do anything for him that's great storytelling in my opinion man that yeah, l- lust mm, that's one of the like, seven deadly sins right probably yeah Ooh. which is we could get into the, that stuff later but i i really liked kirstie because i liked how smart she was like she's yeah uh she picks up on things really fast and she's not willing to like give up her power at all right i I know i know exactly what you're talking about like as soon as she's she's up in the attic with with frank and frank is like doing his weird rapey like talk to her she's struggling she's fighting him the whole time and then she gets she gets the box accidentally and he's like hey don't touch that and she's like oh this is what you like no, I'm not giving this to you. You want it? You could fucking have it. And she throws it out the window. He's like, no. Nah! And then she has enough sense to like take it with her and then run away as, as far as far as she, as she can. No. Give me that. 
Give it to me. You want it? One last time. Give me that box. You want it? Give me the box. You want it? Fucking have it! She she's amazing. Actually, that's not the scene I thought you were gonna refer to. There's another scene that I thought was really funny. Um, there's at the very end, once the Cenobites have taken Frank, demolished him. Mm-hmm. Um, they go after Christy. Christy. Yeah. And she starts to like solve the box. Yeah. There's but- a moment before then too where she's where she, the Cenobites grab her, and then she's like, "Okay, I'm gonna give them Frank instead of me." Well, is this a deal that y'all will take? Well, that's where she that's where she's clever. That's where she's being clever and she's negotiating and she's like she's putting the pieces together Mm -hmm. and she's like because she looks at Frank. She's like, okay, he clearly wants this and he's looking really weird with literally no skin. Something's up. And I mean, that's it's a great call because it stops the Cenobites from taking her. But I was specifically referring to the ending where she's like kind of taking the Cenobites one by one by solving the puzzle box. I think his name is Steve, like her love interest. Yeah. I don't know if you noticed this, but there's like a scene with the, you said the engineer. The engineer is like the one that's like floating at them. Looks like a, he looks like he's upside down or something. Yeah. Well, there's a scene. Like his, his face comes down low and his hands are above him. Yeah. So there's a scene where the engineer has them like pinned and she's like solving the, trying to solve the puzzle. But then Steve's like, tries to take it from her and she's like, no. <laughs> you she, like the look it. she gives to him. Yeah, oh but I but I love that though because it's like okay, mm-hmm. bro. No, well, no, number one, what were you gonna? What were you gonna do? You just got this puzzle literally right now. She clearly knows what she's doing, and it's just little subtle things like that where it's like okay, she she's got this. There's that like intense like stare down she has with the with the engineer. I think. Oh yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, there are a lot of moments where she stands up. I mean, like you, that confrontation that she had with Frank. She's scared when she sees Pinhead, but who wouldn't be? But she still manages to negotiate Frank. You know, uh, when she fights all of the Cenobites at the end, solving the puzzle, where she stares down the homeless guy while he's picking up like crickets and eating <laughs> yeah. them. When she's dealing with the Karen at the pet store. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, like I want to speak to the manager. She's very capable and she's able to do a lot of these things on her own with no help or anything. She's capable on her own. I feel I feel safe in this character's hands. Do you know what I mean? She's a standout dude. Like, I think she's great. And I think she acts. I think she acts really well. This being her first feature length film. Yeah. Like, there's never a moment where I'm like, ooh, that's cringy. There's there's a few moments like that I, I get from this movie. There's one where. When you first are introduced to Larry and Julia, I I feel like that scene's really weird. Which one? Like the the one where they're first like moving into the house. Hmm. Like the dialogue between them, the the way it looks, the way it's filmed, it's like some something feels off about it. It feels like a first time filmmaker kind of thing. And then there's this scene where Ju- where uh Kirsty is is supposed to be drunk and it's like it's it feels weird because it's like okay you're, I can tell you're acting like you're drunk, kind of thing. <laughs> well, I mean, look, she, I think she does great for the majority of the part, but I know the scene yeah, you're talking just, about, and it's hard for people to act drunk. Like, acting drunk is, is really difficult. But I do I do think that there's a reason why some of those, uh, scenes are they feel just kind of hmm why didn't you just do another take you know why was this the best take I. I did a little bit of the research on how the movie was made. So like, 
understanding that makes makes it easier to to see the scenes as or see the movie as like okay this was uh someone's first time making a movie and they did a job better than most people can do i think mm-hmm. well how so i mean uh, elaborate well this movie was made on a really small budget and this was ashley lawrence's first movie this was the first time that uh, clive barker got to do a feature length movie and it was shot in in order like all the scenes that oh no way yeah and even even clive barker does not like that scene with julia and larry in the beginning of the movie to him it's it makes him cringe damn that's and i can totally relate to that because i remember working on on short films and there's like a scene that's like i don't know if this is good i don't think it's good and then I, when we would screen our movies to each other, there's there's always that feeling of like I can't watch this. I can't I can't watch this. This is making me uncomfortable. I know that someone else could have done this part better than me. I know people aren't going to be thinking about the budget, or most people are not. But but just playing it play an issue with, with budgets, obviously can help you or punish you depending on how large or yeah. small they are. And, and be- because the budget was so small. They couldn't afford to do multiple takes for something. Yeah. So you just get you get what you get sometimes, and that's in the movie. And I'll say this: shooting the film chronologically is fucking difficult. If you guys don't know too much about productions, I mean, I think it's common sense to know that most of them are shot out of order, right? In terms of available actors' availabilities, kind of what sets you have built, what locations you have available to you, all, all that sort of thing, right? So if you have actor A available for these days only, you're going to film actors A's scenes in those available dates. You're going to make the most budgetary-friendly filming schedule you can because you don't want to tear down sets and then build them back up or, you know, it's that's just a hassle. But filming mm-hmm. chronologically is a pain i mean it's not impossible people do it all the time i mean clive barker did it but man it's that's a lot of planning and that's a lot of like all right we're at this house now we got to go and then we'll come back to this house and then we're gonna leave and then we're gonna come back i will say though like 80 percent of the movie takes place at the house is that a fair percentage? a lot of the movie and it's an actual house too yeah so i think that softens the blow a bit but yes, yeah, yeah. it's, it's like if you understand that part of like, you know, they're not actually filming real demons and stuff. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's it's all make believe and they're trying to tell it good enough to take you on that journey with them. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And I think for the small budget it had did a really good job. If you understand that, like, they don't have a lot of time to like redo stuff until it's perfect what we got was fine because of the, the other stuff about the movie that's just really really good like the the vision was really really solid unlike unlike anything else out at the time pretty much there was one other thing that i noticed that was like okay this is off the when the engineer creature chases uh kirsty she's the hallway looks like it's really long but it's really not and the way she's running is like, can't you, this doesn't look like you're running very fast. Mm-hmm. And you can actually see in some shots of the engineer, the crew behind it, pushing it on wheels. Oh, no. You can see it. Um, really? Yeah. Damn. But but it's just so, it's so brief. 
And it's like, well, she's in some kind of like nightmare world. And the creature is really gross and disgusting. So it's fine. You know, it's like this weird, it's a weird thing. Well, it uh, those mistakes happen in all movies, literally all production mistakes happen. They you happen. Know? It, and it, it shouldn't like it doesn't ruin the movie like because no. I can see a wheel and like some guy pushing this monster that I know isn't real. You know, that's not going to make me movies like laugh and say, look at that movie's bad. You know what I mean? No, 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 no. I think maybe if the production was more amateurish, if the end result wasn't as good, then maybe we could look at that and just be like, wow, these guys were so amateur, they couldn't even see this mistake. But when everything else is so top-notch, the effects, the scares, uh, the, the, the story, you know, being so sexy and whatnot, you know, and the character designs, particularly the Cenobites, you're like, man, if, you know, yeah, okay, this is one negative versus like how many pros do you know mm-hmm. what i mean i'm not gonna hold it against the film now i'm gonna keep an eye out for it <laughs> yeah I- i'm gonna look for it now but honestly it's not it's not enough for me to say like ha idiots how can they have yeah, seen but, that it's like but no. there's a lot of people out there that see stuff like that and they'll react just that way and that's terrible that makes that makes it really hard to like want to make movies and stuff Little details like that don't don't hurt it. Now, I will say something that did kind of not hurt the experience, but maybe just kind of held it back a little bit was the actual lament configuration, right? Because it's a puzzle that when solved correctly opens up this portal to to hell or this other dimension. Or other dimensions, I, th- I think. Or dimensions, yeah, where the Cenobites exist and they torture the shit out of you. But something that's a little unclear is kind of the power that it has. And you kind of just have to take it that Kirsty's able to use this box against them. And that sort of logic just doesn't completely work. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't mind that Kirsty has to, like, fight the Xenobites, you know, in order to escape because they double-crossed her. I'm cool mm-hmm. with that. But it just seems so ambiguous. Do you know what I mean? That that she's able to, like... It just seems like an ambiguous power. And it being what holds the Xenobites together or i i just don't understand it just seems a, it just makes the fight feel a little less tense and a little bit more like like she has a magic wand for example it's just um, and it's I, it, I can see what what you mean but for me there is something that uh that kind of made it made sense for me so the whole the whole idea of bdsm there's there's like rules about it right it's not it's not just torturing people you know what i mean there's concepts like I was doing a research on like, what do people in the BDSM subculture think of this movie? And some, some of them are like, this is offensive because BDSM mm-hmm. has a code of conduct, safe, sane, consensual. And they're in, in that subculture, you know, if someone is doing something you don't like, you have a safe word and that means to, to stop, right? I think the lament configuration is some kind of like metaphysical intergalactic safe word or something uh so if you you open it and then you engage with the cenobites right but if you use it they have no power over you because you have the power of of the the box does that make sense okay okay actually yeah i i like that way of thinking because if you if you're interested in it but you don't know how to use it then your soul's condemned to to the Xenobites, but if you somehow find a way to unlock its power, you're able to use it to defend yourself. 
Oh, I, I, okay. Right, because I mean, the, the, the Cenobites can't attack you unless you open the box. Mm-hmm. So there's some kind of like consent there where you have to seek out the box and open it. Mm-hmm. And I think in the, the novella that this is based off of, there is a verbal agreement that Frank goes into when interacting with the Cenobites. Okay, now see, that's, that's interesting because that was another concern I had with the box. And I mean, it's not really a bigger concern. It's just something that I'm like, well, it's a movie. You got to make some sort of conflict. But the whole thing about about this there being a correlation to BDSM is, okay, in real life, in, in real life, with responsible adults, BDSM has limitations for depending on the right. person, right? Yeah, there's, there's, you have, the other person that you're with has to be okay with, with what's, what's going on. Otherwise, it's just abuse. Yeah, exactly. So, and that's how real life works. What muddles up the box a little bit, and maybe it was in the book, but what's so weird is that people are like tinkering with this box, but they might not know what it is. Right. And, and that's what maybe mud i don't know if it muddles or if it confuses the whole the whole metaphor to to bdsm because like for example christy doesn't like when she's at the um in the hospital she's toying around with it and she doesn't know when pinhead approaches her she's like you open the box now you belong to me or whatever he says and she's like i didn't know like i didn't know i was getting myself into this is a means to summon us. Who are you? Explorers in the further regions of experience. Demons to some, angels to others. It was a mistake! I didn't, I didn't mean to help, but it, it was a mistake! You can go We can't. Not alone. You solved the box. We came. Now you must come with us. Taste our pleasures. Please, go, go away and leave me alone. Oh, no tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering. I feel like something with horror films is like the the knowledge that something wicked is around the corner. Or to a certain extent, like for example, Hell or Evil Dead, right? With the ne- Necro necronomicon or um the the book of the yeah. dead in that movie yeah. right i mean this is a hard trope a character reads a certain inscription <laughs> or a passage and they're like if thee finishes this sentence we will kill you oh if shit. you light the black flame candle on yes. Hallow's eve <laughs> yes exactly and when something like him when he lights it you're like oh fuck he he unknowingly entered in the agreement even though he was warned he he knows what's coming in some sort of sense. He invoked the bad things that, that are about to happen. Yes. Now he has a responsibility to undo it. But with something like Christy, she didn't like know what she was doing. She just had a puzzle. And she was like, oh, yeah, Frank wanted this. W- what is this? You know what I mean? Like, for example, in the very beginning in Morocco, right? When Frank gets the configuration, the guy's right. like, what's your pleasure? Right? And we could surmise that Frank's hedonistic tendencies have taken him across the world and now he's just talking to a bunch of people's like hey man what do you have like i'm i've done all sorts of shit i've done them yeah. all 
I want more. And this guy comes mm-hmm. up to you. He's like, hey, if you solve this puzzle box, you're going to you're in for some kinky shit. And Frank will be like, OK, I'm game. Here's a bunch of money. Right. So he knowingly enters that arrangement. But Christy doesn't. And so so what does that say? If what if the box and the Cenobites are like BDSM and pain and pleasure, what how does that message relate to Christy unknowingly unleashing the Cenobites on her? If that makes sense. Now, the only explanation I have, like, am I making sense, Austin? Yeah, you're making sense. Okay. I, th- I do think that it's also part of the, the reason why some people in the community don't, they think it's a negative portrayal of, of that subculture. Okay, so see, okay, so that's exact. so that's, that's where I'm coming from. Now, I will say the only explanation I can think of is not even like a thinking man's one. It's <laughs> simply, it's a horror movie. It's not real. This isn't, this isn't real. Like, and it's a movie. It's a horror movie. So you just right. kind of have to just take some of these things. You know, like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Not all hillbillies will want to eat you. Right. Uh, you know, um, uh, what, what, what's another? Jaws. Jaws. Like, sharks are trying to, to kill you. Exactly. Like, I think not a lot of people die from sharks. Or yeah, so not it's very what, many. <laughs> so it's like a misconception. So mm-hmm. that's my only real explanation is, OK, the movie does put up these ideas of pain and pleasure, BDSM, sexuality, lust. Like, OK, it's all up in the air, but it doesn't totally I can't see it totally coming together with Christy. Now, either I'm missing something and maybe there's an interpretation of it that someone could say, well, no, here's how it relates. Or it's simply it's a movie. We got to have some conflict. And mm. I'm like, well, that's not enough for you. I mean, it's not completely enough. I'll take it. Like, I'll take what I have because at the end of the day, I still enjoy the movie. It's not like Mm -hmm. these are deal breakers. But it is one of those things that the only reason I'm thinking about it more is because the film is bringing these ideas up. I didn't ask the film to. The film (laughs) is doing this. The film is saying, here are these ideas between pain, pleasure, sex, lust, domination, all these things, right? And I'm like, okay, you're asking me to think about this stuff. So now that I'm thinking about it, this idea, I don't, I don't see it correlating too well. Not mm-hmm. a, not now. It's not a bad thing. It's just in my second viewing of the film, I noticed this, and I don't have an explanation. I'm excited to think about it, but yeah. on some level, I'm not sure if it totally works. Okay. Which would explain why some people in the BDSM community are kind of offended. It's like, look, man, we're not demons. We're not freaks. We just like what we like. You right. Know? I I think that this is the the Cenobites aren't. Um... They're, they've kind of lost themselves in the, the same pursuit. And you can kind of think of of them and Frank as like what happens, even Julia to an extent, like what happens if you uh, lose your humanity in the pursuit of pleasure? Of extremities? Yeah, the extremities. It's like a, if you go too far, you get these guys. You know what I mean? Mm. And the way that Frank uses the box, he kind of violates the the terms of their uh, agreement right mm-hmm. and he's also killing people to to get more to get himself back and he's kind of abusing their power and now with the his irresponsibility with the powers and the things that he's seen it's kind of like they're kind of like able to run amok a little bit mm-hmm. uh, and so she she takes the box and is exposed to this because of how irresponsible Frank has been with the lament configuration. 
Oh, so she's like um like a bystander. Yeah, because when you and, and the Cenobites just tend to be into her or, or happen to be into her as well. Yeah, you could maybe see that. Okay, there's some kind of like she's she's a, a sexually curious woman too herself, mm-hmm. right? Like it's she makes eyes at this dork across the table at the dinner table, mm-hmm. uh, who's like I don't know that she's she's someone who is sexually active, right? Mm-hmm. And I guess maybe they sense something in her too. Maybe she's drawn to it because she also wants something more. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But I do think it's... she. only reason she gets the box is because Frank has been reckless with it. And when you're reckless with these kinds of powers, bad things happen to innocent people. Mm. See, that that's the explanation. Now, that's something. That's given me something. I like that. The extremities that people go to, you kind of have these innocent bystanders. That's, that's a good way of seeing it. I didn't see it that way before. I didn't, or I didn't think of that before because I'm like, okay, it makes sense. Because, yeah, Frank is definitely portrayed as having been around the block. Like, this dude has done done some stuff. Yeah, he's um, been seeking it out. He's There's a line that he has where he talks about how he's been searching for, for through all, to all the li- limitations, you know, of, mm-hmm. of pleasure and stuff. It's like yeah, he was drawn to this box. Yeah, to the point where he no longer feels any guilt for killing julia you know no guilt and we don't even know how he got the money to pay for the box yeah and we given his living conditions i don't think he did anything legal for for that money yeah and okay and actually your explanation works really well because if that's the case then you could just blame it on the extremities that frank has gone to Mm -hmm. instead of just saying that this particular feeling or behavior or desire inherently makes you villainous, if that makes sense, right? Because I don't think the yes. film is saying, because I, I, I don't think the film is saying right. that. I, I mean, I think the extremity that Frank has gone to has corrupted his soul, right? Because because of how many innocent people he's killed. Like, yeah, the guy, the guys that Julia's are bringing in, the first two guys, they're not cool, but they're not uh, villains. Do you know what I mean? One of them's really right. really shitty. But it's but Frank Frank doesn't care whether they're good or bad. He just no, wants he, blood. If anything, he's willing to kill his brother, mm-hmm. and Julia gets in the way of it. So Frank's corruption isn't led. I mean, it's it's just it's Frank's burden to deal with. It's not any community's desires or wants that you know what I mean. And yeah. and and you could and you could take that idea and apply it to anything. Sexual curiosity mm-hmm. to an extreme can be harmful to some people especially if it's not consensual Mm -hmm. um the desire for money can make you so immoral that you disregard the life of the lives of different people in order in order to pursue more of it yeah weren't you talking about whiplash earlier where like yeah 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 it was about the obsession yeah the obsession with jazz like it's not that jazz is bad it's the the obsession and the the lengths that they go to to be the best I love that. I love that comparison because it's also like, yeah, you can have determination and you can be very focused on your work. But when you're so much so that you that you feel the need to abuse children in order to bring out the best of them, that's where it has to get. That's where that's where the line's drawn, because one if I don't know if you remember that movie, but one of the kids killed themselves because mm-hmm. of how much Fletcher was how much pressure Fletcher was putting them. On him, or or I think the pressure he was putting on himself. But yeah, it's not condemning an organization or a music genre or a desire. It's condemning the person and holding them responsible. You know what? I yeah. like that. I I like that explanation a lot. 
it works with me. Okay, it works with me. Yeah, and I do understand the perspective of the people in the the community who find it offensive because, like we talked about in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, you're you're being exposed to a group of people in a culture that isn't exactly seen positively in the mainstream. So any depiction of it that is less than favorable feels like an attack. Look, sex as a whole is still kind of a taboo topic, at least in the United States. You know, mm-hmm. sex education, I mean, dismal, you know, abysmal, right? I mean, let's, I mean, in my own personal uh, history in high school, we never learned. I mean, we learned about STDs, but we didn't know how to put on condoms. We didn't know about um, contraceptive. Yeah, we didn't learn about contraceptives mm. uh, as extensively. Just because because parents don't want their kids learning that from some random teacher. A little bit of education could go a long way. But mm-hmm. the reason we don't is because sex is seen as icky. Which is very interesting when we go into uh, the censors reacting to this movie. Mm. So but what we'll, do they, we'll what get they there say? when we get there. Oh, you want to get there now? Well, I, I mean, what do you have anything else to... I mean, that was those were really only my few mm-hmm. gripes with the movie okay. was the actual box but the way you kind of reframed it in my head i was like oh that makes a lot of sense and yeah and look certain cer- some certain things don't don't look 100 percent, you know but i am taking the fact that this was made on just a million dollars like this movie has a like under a million dollars huh? 900 900 000 is what i see uh, when clive barker's doing interviews and stuff oh so not even the full million mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah and the effects hold up everything's so great everyone's acting their heart out like it just it does work so really that was my only issue and you've kind of addressed it so i'm like all right i'm good <laughs> was there anything else you wanted to say about the story i don't think so i i do think the i i do want to know more about the the guy that is actually a, like a pterodactyl skeleton demon thing mm, like yeah. he's like staring at julie or staring at kirsty uh, he goes into her store and like grabs a fistful of crickets and eats them and then yeah. he flies away like off screen it's like what's what's going on there that's something that i don't it's like he's watching the box maybe to take it back to so they could get somebody who's actually someone who needs to be locked up in a <laughs> pleasure pain prison interdimensional prison i mean it'd be more interesting to learn about it but i figured that was more like the guardian or protector of the configuration like it was you know like just this entity that kind of roams the earth and gives it to people who want more i I kind of just perceived it that way um and you know another reading is like oh we'll learn about it in the sequel (laughs) so yeah i don't want to watch the sequels because sometimes when you like for me it make the movie makes sense, like with the mm-hmm. limit configuration and stuff. Like, okay, I I can make sense of it, but I feel like the sequels will like maybe add stuff that like messes up my interpretation of this one, and either it can lead to a more enriching experience, as in like the Matrix, which I th- I think those sequels do a good job of building that world, or it could do like an Alien Three and make me really upset, <laughs> and. <laughs> and I've I've heard the sequels aren't as good, but the guy who plays Pinhead is really good in them, and Ashley Lawrence continued to play the Kirsty character, and I'm like, oh, I don't feel like it's gonna end well for her. I don't want, I don't want. To. Yeah, I I've only seen one of the sequels, and I didn't 
dislike it, but I definitely don't think it's as good as the first one. I think the first mm-hmm. one definitely is like, I think the the first one does a good job of kind of uh, yeah. taking this idea and fleshing it out. Um, and like you'd always hope sequels could do that, but sometimes they just get dumb. So I think there's one that uh, the one that came on 2011 that Clive Barker said. When they say from the mind of Clive Barker, that is an absolute lie. That didn't come out. That didn't come from me. Not even from my asshole, I think is what he said or what he tweeted. <laughs> yeah, because definitely, yeah, some of them just became very much like they, they were a shell of what they were intent, intending to be. So that being said, I'm still excited for the Hulu remake for the Hulu, Yo, Hulu it's, reimagining. It's funny. I watched the teaser and I was not a fan. Uh-oh. I I wasn't. You know what it is? It's a female pinhead. I don't like that. No. Oh my god. Not for me. No. I <laughs> I actually I don't know why, but the teaser just didn't didn't grab me. So again, uh, just to quickly re- reiterate, I'm surprised at how much story, actual story was in this movie. Not plot, but more story. The marriage, the daughter, all all the themes at play. I was surprised that it was in there, right? I thought it was extremely... I I did not see that coming. Watching the teaser, I didn't get a sense that there was a story. It just seemed Mm -hmm. like they were showcasing the fact that Pinhead is back and she is torturing people. And I was like, okay, that's... Okay, I'm I'm not totally against that. But but what about a story? Because that's what Mm -hmm. made me fall in love with the first one. That's what got me in. And again, it's a teaser, so that's why I'm not saying that it's going to suck, it's going to be shit. No, 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 because it's a teaser. I've seen plenty of teasers that I thought were awful that turned out to be great, or the movies turned out to be great. So I could be wrong. I'm still going to watch it because I'm definitely curious. Me too. More so than like Prey and Predator, right? I think with uh, Prey, it was like people are saying it's really good, so I'm like, okay, I'll watch it. But because Prey was really good that's work that's doing some work from my interest in hulu hellraiser mm-hmm. like you said i wasn't like super a fan of the the teaser but i'm excited because i love hellraiser and mm-hmm. prey was really good this is also a hulu thing it's just mm-hmm. around the corner i i'm excited no i feel you and i think the reason i'm more curious than than this one compared to prey was because the predator films while not while the rest weren't as good as the first one they weren't like horrible garbage films. Like they still had predators and they had some semblance of what was supposed to happen. But with Hellraiser, those from what I've seen, some of those like direct to DVD sequels were just so far from far removed from the original idea of what this concept is, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Cenobites on Earth with Cenobite guns, and I was like, I don't <laughs> I don't get this, you know? Yeah. And 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 so I'm curious that after so many sequels, can they really go back to the original, that core idea? But for a new generation, a generation that is way more liberal than previous ones, because kids mm-hmm. nowadays are way more into experimenting with greater depths of expression. I'm like, okay, if Hellraiser was ever going to succeed, it should theoretically succeed right now. Maybe in the sixties it would have as well, but you know it's on Hulu. A ton of people have Hulu. It's easily accessible through the internet, and you have a generation that is way more open to things that previous generations were. I'm like, all right, this is your chance. Like, mm-hmm. go. Yeah. So the teaser didn't sell me, but I'm curious, and so Very I'm definitely, curious. I'm definitely 
really, I'm very eager to watch the new Hellraiser, even though Tat Teaser did not sell me. But okay. I could be wrong. Um, let's get into a little bit of how this movie was made. Clive Barker is known as a horror author, but he actually didn't start with writing books. He wrote a lot of short stories. He was a playwright. He wrote movies, two movies before Hellraiser, and he hated them both. <laughs> Underworld and Raw, Rawhead Rex. He was like, these movies are terrible. I better do it myself, he says. <laughs> <laughs> and he... He turns one of his books, his uh, short short stories, uh, The Hellbound Heart. The, the book is pretty similar to Hellraiser the movie, but the main difference, I think, is the relationship between Kirstie and Larry. Larry isn't her dad. He's somebody, he's a co-worker who she kind of has feelings for. Oh. Yeah. Which doesn't really change uh that relationship too much right it's kind of like oh i'm looking out for you i like you but i'm looking out for you kind of thing and then oh i care about you dad okay makes sense yeah and the the like i said before there's an agreement between frank and the cenobites there's like a verbal agreement that like yes i will go into this world with you oh i don't like it here <laughs> <laughs> um and he turns the the movie into or he turns that short story into a movie hellraiser they don't really know what the title is going to be. The studio is like whoever's giving him money. I think it's New World Film, I think. Not a lot of good stories from the relationship between the studio and the actual work done on the film. They were they wanted Pinhead to be funny. They're like, why isn't oh. he making jokes? Why isn't he like Freddy? Oh, I don't like no. this. Yeah. But eventually, with all the stuff that he had been doing, they were like, all right, this is good. So they ended up giving him more money with uh, a caveat. They wanted to set the story in America so that they can hit the American audience mm -hmm. because Americans wouldn't watch a movie that was set in London, which is where Clive Barker is from, which is where the original story took place. And if you watch the movie, part of the plot is they moved to Julia's home turf. Julia has an English accent. Where are they? And I'm so happy you said this. I thought it was just me. You don't know where the movie takes place. Like you're trying. I actively thought throughout the film. Wait, are we in America? Right. But it doesn't feel like America. Because it wasn't. They actually shot it in London. But by removing like the name of the place where they are and giving everybody else American accents, you're in America. The, the actual, the actor who plays um, Frank is English. He was actually redubbed. And I think other characters were too. I think the guy who's moving, like the moving guy, I think he was redubbed. As oh, well. no way. Yeah, because there's, there's some characters who when they talk, it, it comes out really funny. Yes, they, that's they exactly dubbed. what I was thinking. I was like, why does Frank sound so weird? <laughs> Can I come in? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, so there's a reason. There was a reason for that. <laughs> I'm hurting. My nerves are beginning to work again. Good. One more, maybe two. Not again. To heal me completely. Then we can be away from here before they start to follow. Oh. The Cenobites. It's only a matter of time before they find I've slipped them. I must get away from here. Julia. God, this um, is the second instance of that happening on this podcast. 
<laughs> fucking Mad Max. Right. Except you do. You, they didn't redub Julia because she's like. I feel like she has the most lines and she's in it the most. No, that so, would have been ter- that would have been a terrible fucking decision. Oh, yeah. Thank God they didn't do that. I mean, at least mm. you could argue that Frank is not in the film as much. I or I mean, Frank the facial actor, but Frank the skeletal muscle body is. But yeah, you know, I, I don't. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when they got the the money, they were like, okay, well, let's let's add that scene where Frank transforms because originally they didn't have the budget for that. So they ended up doing that, and the guy who did it, um, whose name is Bob Keen, this is the person responsible for that, he gave them a good deal because it was something that he always wanted to do. And in the, in the novella, Frank's semen and Larry's blood mix, and that's what causes him to come back. Mm. So okay. like the, it, they don't say it in the movie, but... That's why that puddle he comes out of looks the way it does. Because it's supposed to be semen. Yeah. Uh, comes from a place where pleasure and pain are one and the same. <laughs> um, and that's really so, funny. Yeah, and that seems really good, too. I feel like it's they have it early on in the movie, too, so it's like, oh, this is a very visual movie. Yeah, No, that scene is phenomenal. The, just so good. the reconstruction of Frank's body or mm-hmm. you know whatever that is is incredible and right. when he yells oh shit like it sold it a hundred percent it's so important to have stuff like that in the beginning especially when that the dialogue scene is kind of weird mm-hmm. to let you know you're in for a wild ride you no, know no, I, I remember watching that scene and being like, what the fuck is this? What am I watching? I thought I was supposed <laughs> to see this dude with pins in his head. And now I'm seeing seeing the skeleton literally being born from blood. Yeah. And just popping out of the floor the, the, the floorboards. And the way they filmed it too, like you can kind of tell that this is just being done in reverse. Mm-hmm. But they had the the blood like pump through the floorboards. They had like mm-hmm. a machine. And then for his beating heart, that was like done by hand uh, or like the lungs of the special effects guy. Mm-hmm. Like he was breathing into it. Like it's, it's really good. I feel like it, it holds up very well. Oh, a hundred percent. It totally does. Um, so they are trying to think of how do we, how do we design pinhead? Uh, Bar- Clive Barker, he gave them notes on like what to, what are they supposed to look like? He's, uh, he told the costume designer that he wanted them to be, he wanted them to have repulsive glamour and look like magnificent butchers. And he was, he was inspired by punk Catholicism and the visits that he would take to S&M clubs in New York and Amsterdam. So he's a part, I guess he would be a kind of a part of that BDSM subculture a little bit, mm-hmm. you know? So I don't think he was trying to like make them seem like monsters. He just kind of took ideas and put them in his weird, horny horror movie. I don't think, let's put it this way, I don't think you could write the script being a very humbly Christian person. I think you need to be someone who <laughs> is not that. I mean, I'm not yeah. saying, I, I don't know if Clyde Barker is Christian, uh, but I y- this movie would be played out very, very, very different by a hardcore Christian. Let's put it that way. Right. Um, I, I, I think could, he was, like, when he was growing up you know he was probably had some christian backgrounds but he's also gay 
it says that he works as a prostitute too. So he probably has some of that like guilt kind of thing working with him. Uh, it's probably like in him. Even in the movie, like there's all these images of Jesus and stuff. Mm-hmm. They're like in the house. So it's like an internal thing. Like you're being, sh- you have some kind of internal guilt about your sexual desires. On some level, he could probably relate to Julia to a certain degree. Yeah, to to a certain degree. It's almost like uh, this is what what could become of me if I wasn't given an opportunity to be sexually free. Mm-hmm. But so the connection between S and M uh, and Hellraiser is was in its inception. You know, it's not something that we're making up. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, they had a maggot wrangler and a roach wrangler on set. I saw that. Yeah, disgusting. Ooh. But but it, it it worked. It works. Yeah, there was something that I was. Oh yes, the the censors. So when they were trying to get this movie in America, the censors were like, "This is disgusting. X rating, which is a very bad for movies, because then you can't put it in some theaters." It's like the NC seventeen. Yes, the NC seventeen. Um, so they had to like cut stuff, and a lot of the stuff that they cut was the sexual stuff. For some reason in America, sex is more difficult to see than violence. Oh yeah, and that's that that's that's how it's been, bro. I don't know why, but mm-hmm. America would much rather watch rape scenes than actual intimate sex scenes. I don't know right. why. I don't know why. That's just that's the way it is. We'll Terrible. see we'll see rape scenes, uh uh, uh war scenes, uh torture porn and all of that is acceptable, more acceptable than two people actually having intimate sex. Crazy. Barker says on the, the commentary for Hellraiser, we did a version of the scene, he's referring to Julia and Frank having sex, that flashback. We did a version of the scene which had some spanking in it, and the MPAA was not very appreciative of that. Lord knows where the spanking footage is. Somebody has it somewhere. The MPAA told me I was allowed to do two consecutive buttocks thrusts from Frank, but three is deemed obscene. I love how how you get clinical about it. And it's like, we'll allow two, but a third <laughs> pumps where we draw the line. It, it reminds me it reminds me of that Key and Peel sketch with the football player. <laughs> you know the one I'm talking about? Yeah, unsportsmanlike conduct. Yeah. Hing- by Hingle the Kringleberry. <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly that's that's exactly what it's like. Mm-hmm. Oh goodness gracious, what the fuck! Uh, and they had a hard time coming up with the title of the movie. Uh, one crew member said it was "What a Woman Will Do for a Good Fuck," which is obviously a joke. That <laughs> they kept they kept on every like article I see about the production of this movie, they always repeat that one. That's a good one, though. She's not. Yeah. R- she's not wrong. That's absolutely what the movie's about. Yeah. You know, there's the whole um, explain a movie badly. <laughs> that's that's how you explain this movie badly. Yeah, that's one of them for sure. The guy who plays Larry is probably one of the most famous actors in the movie. They mm-hmm. wanted bigger names for stuff. At one point, Jennifer Tilly was almost was in. Uh, she auditioned for the part of uh, Kirstie, who I, I love Jennifer Tilly, but I, I feel like the actress they got was great for the role. Uh, Andrew Robinson ended up ad-libbing a lot of lines of dialogue. Oh, uh, I heard about one that he ad-libbed. Enough of this cat and mouse shit, and Jesus wept. Yep, that <laughs> iconic is, line. 
It's the last thing he says right before the Cenobites rip his body apart. And I, spoilers, I'm gonna that line's gonna come back. <laughs> oh, um, it's interesting because I don't really understand it. Okay, but I, but goddamn, what a line to go! Because originally mm-hmm. the line was "fuck you" because he was saying yeah. it to Christy, but then he's but then they decided to go with Jesus wept, and it's like that left a way bigger impact. It's so much of a bigger impact, um, but. The last thing I wanted to say about the production of the movie is the the actor who plays Pinhead. He's actually, his name is Doug Bradley, and he's actually been a part, he's been working with Clive Barker for a while, from when they were doing weird experimental short films, from when he was in the plays and stuff with him. He played a similar character called the Dutchman, who was this like ethereal creature who has lines that feel like oh pinhead would say something like that he has the the dutchman would say something like why do you murmur why do you dread the calm symmetry of death is there not succor to be drawn from oblivion the pattern must be complete birth is but the first preparation for death such ooh, it's chilling yeah so when creating the the character he was like how do i play this so he asks clive barker for help because you know clive barker is a director um, and he asks him this is a quote from doug bradley i went to clive worried saying give me a clue about him he was magnificent and irritating at the same time because he has a wonderful imagination but it's difficult to lock down he told me he thought of him as a cross between an administrator and a surgeon who's responsible for running a hospital where there are no wards, only operating theaters. As well as being the man who yields the knife, he's the man who has to keep the timetable going. Armed with that, I went back to the script and said, but how do I play him? <laughs> uh, so he like has to like just come up with an answer himself because I guess he couldn't get any more out of Clive Barker. Uh, so he just starts like looking in the mirror and saying some of the lines and the character was born, you know, he's been the, he's been pinhead for, for a long time. And similar with Andy Serkis, like, and in Hocus Pocus, the creature actor. Oh, D- Doug Jones. Doug Jones. They all say like, he's just as much the character as the, the prosthetics, you know, like uh, somebody on the documentary for one of, one of the Hellraisers says 95% of what Pinhead is, is what Doug Bradley brings to the role. I was surprised how different his performance was. It was very general-like, someone who had stood back and had control and had brought a great strength to the character and had a great appeal for that, a great appeal of that strength. Doug's voice was so fantastic. You hear him and he has those wonderful lines. The whole thing just grew and grew, So, which is which is accurate. You know, he's he would say that Clive... He would say that Clive Barker would give him notes over and over again. Do less, do less, do less. And that's what makes him so good. Like he's doing just enough for the film 
to, to make this character seem larger than life. These monster actors just aren't able to, don't get enough credit, you know? And, like, I don't think a lot of people are familiar with Doug Bradley, but they've seen Pinhead, and they've heard that voice, and it's like, that man deserves a lot of credit. Just like Kevin Peter Hall, just like Doug Jones. Like, these mm-hmm. are these are people that are not getting the respect that they deserve. Yeah. He's not in the movie very much, but he, he leaves an impression. I get excited every time I... Like when she goes into the hospital, it's like, oh, here it comes, here it comes. So when she, when the the fingers go in her mouth, I'm like, why is that so sexual? It's a weird thing, man. I don't know. I don't know. Those those set of bites are awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, that's disgusting, but I'm not looking away. Exactly. In in when they actually filmed that scene, uh, they actually uh, tore the skin off of her palate in her mouth. Oh. The, the Cenobites couldn't see. Oh. They had a very hard time seeing. So, like, there was, like, oh, that, he didn't do it on purpose. He just couldn't see. Yeah. And I think a lot of, for a lot of those scenes, they're not even in the same room as her. Oh, really? Yeah. They're just, they're always filmed shot, reverse shot, so that they're not actually in the room at the same time, which you would never know because of how visually prepared they were to make this movie. But that's all I have. I love this movie. That's that's a lot of cool stuff. It, it's funny because the reception toward this movie is wild because there are so many different reactions to it, right? You mm-hmm. have some people, you have some reviewers at the time who were saying like, um, like some people are like, Clive Barker's kind of a weirdo. He's kind of weird. <laughs> some people are like, uh, this movie made me uncomfortable. But it's funny because all these things, all these reviews vary so differently because you have some people saying it's a masterpiece, it's genius. Some people are saying it's very innovative and fresh and other people are saying that it is absolute trash. One of the most infamous reviews about this movie was by Roger Ebert where he said, and I'm going to quote him, who goes to see movies like this? What do they get out of them? I like good horror movies because I enjoy being surprised and sometimes even moved. But there are no surprises in Hellraiser. Only a dreary series of scenes that repeat each other. What fun is it watching a movie mark time until the characters discover the obvious? This is a movie without wit. This is where he fires his his kryptonite bullet. He says, This is a movie without wit, style, or reason. And the true horror is the actors were made to portray and technicians to realize it's a bankruptcy of imagination bankruptcy I, of imagination i love ebert i appreciate his time but i don't agree with him on some of these these movies oh like that's he, an ass review it's a terrible review yeah uh he he's it's just not his thing like he hates david lynch he hates this movie he hates uh, a lot of cronenberg stuff too but like dude these are geniuses these are visionary geniuses nobody makes movies like them it's interesting because by those filmmakers that you said, they're not conventional. I mean, David Cronenberg, right. David Lynch, and Clive Barker now. Like, these are people that deal in the mysterious, the ambiguous, the cosmic, the... I mean, David Lynch, he's a weird guy. Even Mulholland Drive is a weird movie. And that doesn't even really deal with, like, the interdimensions of, like, Twin Peaks and stuff. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. Mulholland Drive is essentially just a dream but it's a fucked up one. Um, there is a similarity between them. And I haven't seen too many David Cronenberg films, but I mean, um, that man deals in body horror. He deals in like satirizing 
modern life and just a bunch of the horrible shit that we do to ourselves. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. Like, I, I think it's an ass review. I think it's a shitty opinion. <laughs> and I yeah. mean, look, he can have it. You know, he, he is still one of the world's most impressive film reviewers. I'm not going to take that away from him. I disagree heavily because to say that it's bankrupt of imagination, I'm like, no. Like, even I even acknowledge the technical wondery of the movie. Like, even if you don't like the story, like, you know, there's a lot there's a lot of beauty in the movie, you know. And it it. Like, if you're somebody who comes from, like, a very religious, like, vanilla, like, the only sexual position is missionary. Like, if you're that kind of person and you see this movie and it, like, it, it opens your imagination. I'm sorry. You're you're incorrect. <laughs> I'm not the only person who who has that kind of relationship with this movie. You know, I, I Googled it and then there's other people asking the same question. Do you consider Hellraiser a legit gateway drug into BDSM? <laughs> that's a reddit post on like the bdsm subreddit yeah and and so i and i think but again i think it was just not his movie i mean i i have movies like that too that are like well regarded everybody loves them but i'm like i just don't get it like Mm -hmm. and that's fine that's that is you know movies are not meant to have a unanimous opinion about them they are meant to have varied opinions but i just thought it was a very funny and outspoken review and it kind of symbolizes it, it kind of shows the extremity that people will go to for this movie because some people think it's horrible that it's like um you know this reviewer gave it a one out of one and a half um ryan p murphy will acknowledge that it's smarter than most typical teen slasher films but um but also say that hellraiser progresses slowly from here and that the conclusion is pat and predictable and amateurish effort at showing the advantages of evil of good over evil with this movie it's super varied you're going to have people that will defend it. You'll have people that think it's a good movie. And then you'll have people that think it's horrible. Or some people that just think it's bad. But you yeah. got a waste of your time. <laughs> this is very much a... It all goes. Because you'll have films that are like... It's either loved or hated by everyone. You know? It's like like a Last Jedi. This is like... Okay, there are all flavors. So Wait, what? It's like an all flavors kind of thing. Like every... Everyone has their... Oh, divisive. Yeah. Divisive. Well, I mean, this movie doesn't seem divisive. It seems like everyone has a particular... Everyone has a specific way of feeling about it, whether it's amazing, good, bad, or horrible. Like, it's all over the place. Because I feel like movies like The Last Jedi are divisive. Like, most people don't say it's a good movie. Most people say it's either the best one or the worst one. Okay, so you're saying that for Hellraiser, there's... the opinions are more scattered it's not just good or bad it's it's yeah yeah because people because there are some reviews that will appreciate the effects and appreciate the imagery of like hellraiser and his design some people said that there's just enough not enough pinhead right that like you know what's this one said that what's so disappointing about the movie is that pinhead the figurehead of this franchise isn't in the movie as much as we would like to think or like to remember for people that are a little bit older so it's scattered instead mm, okay. of it being, you know, just one or the other, like some cult films are. It's an interesting movie. And that's why I also recommend people just watching it, especially if you're dipping your toes into horror films. Give it a shot because I'm curious to think what you have to say about it. Maybe you you maybe you side maybe you side with Ebert and it's horrible trash. <laughs> or, or this movie you think it's really good. Or you might even think this this movie is a gateway drug to a whole other world. <laughs> yeah so do you want to move on to quotes 
yeah, yeah, let's move on to quotes. All right, so this is the part of the episode where we describe how we feel about the movie by using a quote from the movie. It can be our favorite quote. It can be a quote that summarizes how I feel about the movie or how we feel about the conversation we just had. Uh, Usually, George goes first, and usually, George breaks the rules. Yeah, so I have two. One that's funny and one that kind of summarizes how I feel about the movie or kind of what I think. Well, I'll explain in a sec. So the first one is when uh, Pinhead's like telling Chris Christie, like, this isn't for your eyes. And then Frank, mm-hmm. uh, now wearing Larry Skins, like, you set me up, bitch. <laughs> I was laughing. I thought it was so funny. Uh, there's just something about it that, that I was laughing. But I think the way I feel about this movie and I think a, the way a lot of people feel about the movie is um, when Christie asks you know, Pinhead, who are you? And he says, explorers in the further regions of experience, demons to some, angels to others. I think that's exactly what this movie is. It is demons to some and angel to others. And I think that's a very, very interesting, that makes for a very interesting movie. So, and if you're interested, worth watching. Those are great quotes. I love the angels, to uh, demons to some, angels to others. So oh, yeah. yeah. Like All I of could... his lines in that scene. Oh, Maybe. all of them. Maybe. The way he says that. Oh. I, I I love the one where he's like, "Don't waste those. Don't waste that good suffering." Uh, don't waste those tears. No, don't cry. It's a waste of good suffering or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. <laughs> okay, so my quote is at the very end of the movie when Frank dies. He's about to kill Kirsty. And then all of a sudden, the Cenobite chains like stop his hand right about the knife, right about when the knife is about to come down on her, and he gets strung up by all the rest of the chains. His they're all in his face, and he looks to the camera with a smile on his face and says, "Jesus wept," and then he gets torn apart. <laughs> uh, I love it because it's so memorable because it kind of comes out of left field a little bit, but. Frank was looking for this. You know, he belonged with the Cenobites because of how far he's like gone down this this hole, this hedonistic hole. And it kind of speaks to me a little bit because there's like if you come from like a really religious background, I feel like sex is like this negative thing. And I feel like watching this movie was like something that would be a big no-no, right? So I imagine like me watching and enjoying this movie. There's like Jesus is just like shaking his head at me somewhere. Like I can't believe you're watching this, Austin. <laughs> uh, and I think that that image is really funny. I think the biggest jump scare is when the Jesus statue comes down and scares the shit out of Kirsty and almost makes her give away her position. And it scares <laughs> the shit out of me too. Oh, it, it scared me too. Yeah, <laughs> I always forget about it. Um, but that's that's why I love this movie. It's it's a great watch every time. Yeah, it's definitely worth the watch, 100%. All right, so that concludes our episode on Hellraiser. I hope you guys enjoyed it. We enjoyed talking about it. It's a, it's a great movie and a fantastic Halloween choice. And don't forget that the reboot, re-sequel, I'm not sure what it is, is coming to Hulu. It's premiering on October 4th, so... I'm really curious to check it out. I want to see it. Yeah, and if man. not, it's not going to ruin this one. 
You know, this no, is still no, going to no. be great. I mean, if none of the other Hellraiser films have ruined the original, I don't think this one is. All right, so next, so we still have our October spooky month where we're watching a bunch of scary movies. We have Constantine left, The Thing, and we've also got Bram Stoker's Dracula in November. So stay tuned, guys. If you love this episode, please tell your friends about it. Give us that five stars, those sweet stars uh, when you review us. And uh, Austin, where can they reach us? You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at retrograde underscore pod. We post little videos there because sometimes, you know, when we talk about movies, it's a very visual thing and you want to see what we're talking about. Also, they're they're really fun to make and it would be great if you could share some with share some with other people, let them know, hey, these guys are pretty good. Um, maybe they'll come by and listen to one of our episodes. We are on Spotify, iTunes, or Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, all those all those places. Uh, retrograde podcast. If you don't subscribe to us, you, it's for it's free. Um, and eventually, we're going to have a Patreon, and we're going to have all kinds of fun stuff there. George and I, we talked about all the stuff we're going to add to it, um, the, the different tier lists that we will have. Uh, it's gonna it's gonna be a great time. We're gonna start it off on next year, and I'm excited about all the stuff we're gonna do. This is something I love doing every other week. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. Uh, come by on our, on our Discord too. Just DM us on our socials, and we'll send you the info there. Uh, but that's all we have. Uh, we will see you next week. My cat is just screaming at me the whole time. I'm sorry if it's annoying you. <laughs> he's, but he's not sorry. He's, he's we've come to decide that he's a chaotic evil presence in this house. <laughs> but we love him. Um, but that is our show. See you next week. Bye-bye.